Good to be with you. Good to be with my friends, Godfrey and Debbie, again. Uh, you know, when you're at a, at a place like a college church and you see the students come and go, sometimes you don't ever get the joy of knowing what becomes of them and what they do with their lives. And I will tell you that just seeing what these two do in the work for the Lord and for you guys, it, it just tells me that our schools are worth every penny we put into them. So thank you for giving your lives to the Lord in service what you do. And thanks for letting me come be here with uh, all of your friends. This is a joy for us. Although I will confess that whenever I come to Colorado, I have to do double prayer. Because, um, you know, you're always praying, you know, of course, what you're going to speak about. But I always have to have a little time of struggle with God to ask him, help me not covet. Because you get to live here. We live in Nebraska. We live in a state where the highest point in the state is a freeway overpass. You know? So enjoy and be thankful for what you have here because it's a glorious place to live. And I love the feeling of your church family. Uh, it seems like you like coming to be here with each other. And that's a great thing. And I'll tell you something. Big churches have their advantage. But we don't get to do what you just got to do a few minutes ago before your prayer time in a big church. Because something happens when you get a certain size and people kind of get scared and, and you know, it would, it would be thought of as taking too much time. But in your church, that's family time. That's the most important time you can spend. So my hat's off to you and uh, continue to be that family church that you are right now. Well, we're going to talk about forgiveness. Maybe we should be talking about Christmas, but in a way, aren't we still? Because we would have nothing to talk about with forgiveness were it not for the gift of Jesus and his coming to our earth. So it's all related in that sense. Um, I'm going to take you to a, a biblical story this morning that you know very well. Um, and I, it's always kind of dangerous to jump into the middle of a story. And I can only get away with that because you know this one so well. But let me set the stage first for some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. I'm going to make the case against forgiveness. This comes from Simon Wiesenthal's life. This particular story was written about in a book called The Sunflower. Wiesenthal once found himself standing over the bedside of a German soldier dying from head wounds in a makeshift hospital outside his concentration camp at Mauthausen, Austria. A young architect at the time, Wiesenthal, felt sure he was doomed along with all the other Jews caught in Hitler's death machine. He met the dying soldier while clearing out the trash from the impoverished hospital that took in wounded soldiers from the Russian front. Near evening, a nurse took him by the arm and brought him to the bedside of a boyish stormtrooper named Carl, whose head was bandaged with a pus-soaked gauze. Death was obviously near. Carl grabbed Wiesenthal's wrist. He whispered that he had to talk to a Jew. Any Jew would do. But he had to talk to a Jew before he died so that he could confess some terrible things that he had done to Jews and could be forgiven for them. He confessed what he had done while he was stationed in a Russian village. His company was ordered to take reprisals there. So they packed a frame house full of Jews, including many children, poured gasoline on the floors, locked the doors, and set the house on fire. Anyone trying to escape through the windows were shot dead before they could reach the ground. Carl finished his confession, weeping. And then when he regained his composure, he begged Wiesenthal to forgive him. 
He could not die in peace unless a Jew forgave him for the terrible things he had done. Wiesenthal listened, awestruck, to everything Carl had told him. What would he do? What would you do in that kind of circumstance? Well, this morning I'm going to use as sort of the nexus of our conversation three little verses out of the 13 chapters in Genesis that comprise the Joseph story. These three verses, if they're even ever mentioned, are only usually mentioned sort of as a parenthetical curiosity. But I think if we don't give these three verses their due, we first of all, we miss the context for the drama that's about to take place. But secondly, we, we lose sight of the humanity of Joseph in this story. It's so incredible, that story. is. Sometimes we forget he was a real person. So we can lose that humanity, that sense of humanity about him. Uh, we also might very well then miss the touch point that intersects his life from our life. So I want to give those three verses their due this morning. And just to give you a context for those three verses, I'm going to start three verses before that. So Genesis chapter 41 is where we're going to start this morning. Genesis chapter 41. And as soon as I start reading, you'll know instantly where we are in the story. We'll begin with verse 46. Genesis 41 46. And if you don't happen to have your Bible with you, we have, the, we have the text up on the screen. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food and produced in those seven years the abundance of Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. All right, so we know that he's through all the bad stuff, right? He's now been made prime minister of the nation, and he's done a marvelous job at taking care of all of the grain that God gave in the abundance. And now we come to what I think is the nexus of our time together today. Verse 50. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Now, I don't know what you guys did when you named your children. When we named our kids, we just found names that we liked that sounded good. <laughs> and then we checked those little books that tell you the name, what the names mean. We wanted to make sure we weren't naming our kid one who wreaks continual havoc or, or one, one who likes to draw on the wall with crayons. You know, as long as it wasn't something like that, it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy. As long as we liked the name, that's what we picked, right? Had to make sure it didn't remind us of anybody we didn't like from our past. You know, all those kind of things. Biblical times, they took it very seriously. Every name had a very specific meaning. And so when you called that name, that person by that name, you were then reminded of all that went into that name. So every time Joseph said the name Manasseh or Ephraim, he was reminded of an incredible healing that had taken place in his life. I bet he had a chance to say those names often, maybe even took more opportunities to say them because of what it would remind him of. He had this apparent wonderful healing. 
And good for him, right? Who in the world would deserve it more than Joseph? But did you ever wonder how that came about? Why did that happen? What made that possible? Was it that things are now so good, you know? Uh, and that's how he got the healing? You know, his fortunes turned around. And what incredible fortune. Prison to prime minister? Are you kidding me? And what a change was that? Or did God just sort of wave a magic wand over him and make him uh, just forget all of the past, right? And what was it that he would have to forget? A guy who's a pastor but a pretty good author named Gene Getz writes a lot about biblical characters. He has this little section on his book on Joseph that kind of imagines some of the questions that you'd have to deal with. Did he forget the traumatic experience when he was rejected by his brothers? Did, they, did he forget the day they stripped him of his robe and threw him into the pit? Did he forget the argument his brothers had within his hearing about whether or not to take his life? Did he forget that they sat down to a satisfying supper while he begged in absolute futility for their mercy? Did he forget the horrible moment when they bartered with the Midianite traders and finally settled on his price for a slave? Did he forget those days as he was marched barefooted over the hot desert roads, bound for a strange land, leaving his family far behind? Did he forget the slave block in Egypt where he was auctioned off to the highest bidder? Did he forget what it felt like going from the most favored son to a piece of property in Potiphar's house? Did he forget the daily experience of being exposed to sexual temptations by a very seductive and sensuous woman? Did he forget her cries of rape when he ran away refusing to violate his moral principles and his master's trust? Did he forget those long years in prison as an innocent man? Did he forget the cupbearer's failure to remember him when he was restored to Pharaoh's right hand? Did he forget those lonely hours thinking about his father, his deceased mother, and his little brother Benjamin? I've got a four-word answer for you to all of those questions. I don't think so. Now, Lewis B. Smedes wrote a little bit of an interesting sentence in his book, The Art of Forgiving. This just comes from the introduction. He says, One of God's better jokes on us was to give us the power to remember the past and leave us no power to undo it. The ability to remember becomes an inability to forget when our memory is clogged with the pain inflicted by people who did us wrong. Powerful statement, isn't it? <laughs> So if Joseph is truly healed in his spirit and in his emotions, just exactly what was it that he forgot? How did he get to that point? How do you even get there? Well, here's the deal. I believe those three verses we read that talked about his naming his children describe his spiritual and emotional healing which came about not because of the change of his circumstance or because God had waved some magic wand over him. It happened because he decided to forgive all the people in his life who had so shamefully and hurtfully wronged him. It's as simple and as difficult as the one word, forgiveness. Now, you know where I'm going with all this. There's no secret to this. So I'm wondering what you're thinking about in your mind as I'm talking about Joseph forgiving the people who hurt him. 
And you remember that old uh, game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Anybody ever watch that? I liked it better when Regis was, you know, still mobile and could host that show. He was more fun, I think, than Meredith, although she did a good job, too. Remember how they used to have ways that if, if you got stuck on a question, you could kind of, you know, consult with somebody, you could call a friend, or they'd put a list up on the screen and the audience could vote? Well, let's do a little audience voting about maybe how you're thinking right now, okay? Uh, here are your possibilities, right? Uh, impossible. What was done to me was just too big to be forgiven. How about this one? You're nuts, Thurber. They don't deserve my forgiveness. All right. Number three, can't do it. That let them get away with something nobody should get away with. Or how about number four? Nope. Tried it once. Got hurt again. And number five. Nope. I'm just not ready to let go of this yet. So audience, lock in your votes. <laughs> Now, maybe you're thinking I'm setting up a straw man here. After all, the word forgiveness didn't even appear in the verses that I read. Okay, I'll grant you that. If you'll grant me this, this is really important. There is no other possible explanation because there is no other biblical prescription that can account for it. This is the only thing. But I said that we were going to talk about the case against forgiveness, so let's do that. And it's a formidable case, and I will admit that to you right up front. All of these things are important. You know, to be honest about the case against forgiveness, it's got to at least contain these elements. First of all, maybe some things really are too big to forgive. Remember where we left our story with Simon Wiesenthal? I need to finish that for you. Wiesenthal listened, awestruck, to everything Carl had told him. He said nothing. Finally, he yanked his hand away and left Carl to die with his unforgivable sins unforgiven. Later, he wondered if perhaps he'd been wrong not to forgive the young man who had begged for his forgiveness on his deathbed. When the war was over and he wrote this story down, he asked his readers, was my silence at the bedside of the dying Nazi right or wrong? This is a profound moral question that challenges the conscience. What would you have done? He writes. Another element in the case against forgiveness. It would be unfair. I mean, we have this sort of uh, moral instinct for fairness. You know, we can tell when something is not right. We can't just gloss over the enormity of evil. We can't trivialize huge hurts. If you don't take these things seriously, it feels like a slap in the face to the person who's been hurt. Third, there's a justice factor. Scales ought to be balanced. Remember that monster in Ohio that kidnapped those three young women Held one of them for almost 10 years. Remember that guy? Justice is demanded sometimes, right? You got to have justice. You bring folly to all of life. If you let people know in advance anyway, you can do pretty much anything you want and still get away with it. You can't do that. And finally, it seems so dishonest. It seems like it just denies reality. You can't just act like it didn't happen and sweep it under some magic carpet and just hope it'll go away. That's not intellectually honest. And my friends, if you come at me with these and other points you could make, <laughs> I would make no attempt to deny the veracity of your claims because they would all be accurate. I concede every one of those points.
pretty strong case against forgiveness, right? And we're looking at strong cases. Some people are looking for the case for impeachment. Others are looking for the case for not impeachment, right? So we're paying attention to things for and against. That's the, the case against forgiveness, and it's formidable. It's formidable. But against all of those valid things, I offer only this one point in favor of it. And I find its elegant simplicity to be, simplicity to be quite compelling, not to mention its truth. Are you ready? Here's the one. You forgive in order to heal. That's it, really. Forgiveness is really about you who has been hurt. Now, does that seem selfish just a little bit? I'm going to remind those of you that were here last night of one of the scriptures I used last night, Isaiah 43, 25. This is in a section where God is trying to woo the people back. And he's talking about his love for them and how he will take care of them. And he uses these words. He says, I, it is I, even I, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers them no more. God blots out sin for his own sake to bring peace and healing to his own heart. So if God can do it, it doesn't have to feel selfish for you and me, right? Powerful thought there. Let me throw a smattering of words at you from some authors that I have read about this. Just, just a few words just to kind of give you some more hope here. First one more from The Art of Forgiving. The only way to remove the nettle of hurt is with a surgical procedure called forgiveness. It is not as though forgiving were the remedy of choice among other options, less effective but still useful. It is the only remedy. And how about this one? Do a long, slow burn, and you hurt no one but yourself. The man who broods over a wrong poisons his own soul. And I like this one from Victory Over the Darkness by Neil Anderson. The victim may say, I can't forgive these people. You don't know how bad they hurt me. The problem is they're still hurting you. How do you stop the pain? Forgiveness is what sets us free from the past. What is to be gained in forgiving is freedom. You don't heal in order to forgive. You forgive in order to heal. Forgiveness is to set a captive free and then to realize you were the captive. You don't forgive others for their sake. You do it for your sake. Those you need to forgive may never be aware of your choice to let them off your hook. Forgiveness is the fragrance that is left on the heel that crushed the violet. And finally, a few words from a person who's got some pretty good bona fides in terms of theology, the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32 Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Those are all the things that live in us when we're not forgiving, aren't they? Isn't that incredible? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Fine and good, Mick, but people shouldn't get off the hook when they do bad stuff and it hurts. I agree completely. But here's some things I want you to know in the case for forgiveness. Real forgiveness requires some things to be real. First of all, real forgiveness insists that a terrible wrong was done. 
Secondly, real forgiveness admits that a person or a group of persons made choices resulting in your hurt. They are responsible for it. Third, real forgiveness realizes that justice may still be required even when forgiveness is offered. Fourth, real forgiveness surrenders the right to vengeance. What does God say about vengeance? Who does it belong to? It's his. They don't get off the hook. They just get off your hook. You see? And finally, perhaps most importantly, Real forgiveness helps you see your protagonist clearly. When we don't forgive people, see, we tend to see them solely by the actions that they cause that hurt us. That's how we define them. That's all we think of when we see them. But real forgiveness releases us to see the whole person. A botched self. A person who is a mixture of meanness and decency. Maybe lies and truth, good and evil. (laughs) Much like ourselves, perhaps. I think forgiveness actually deals with more reality than not forgiving. See? Now, for Joseph to have forgotten everything would have been to deny his reality and his humanity. Because he chose to forgive, God could do a resurrection of sorts in his life. I want to give you a little better answer that Gene Getz gives to his own series of questions about what it was that Joseph forgot. And I think a lot of you here, almost half of you here, can understand this perfectly. The rest of us will get it by inference, all right? Here's what Getz says. He says, what then did God enable Joseph to forget? It was the pain associated with those events. The emotional sting was gone. He was not in bondage to past experiences. There was no lingering bitterness, no inhibiting fear, no debilitating emotional sensitivity, and no obsessive thoughts that plagued his mind or compulsive behaviors that dominated his actions. Joseph had no regrets. God had healed his memories. Now, the closest thing we can come to to really understanding this, especially for us guys... Is think back, if you had the glorious blessing of having had a child in your life, you know. Guys, you, there's an appropriate time to say this, an appropriate time not to say this, okay? If you say to your sweet wife, sweetie, let's have another one, you'd be far better off saying that about a year and a half down the line rather than about 20 minutes after you're holding your newborn for the first time, right? No doubt there was pain there. But God does a miracle for women, I believe. You remember that you had pain, but you don't relive the pain. See, There's a way to get rid of it. And that comes, I believe, through forgiveness. Now, I promised yesterday that I was going to deal with one more issue. And this is probably one of the most important issues in the case against forgiveness. And it's the one that most often in spite of that list I gave you beforehand, this is the one that most often keeps people from wanting to forgive. And I'm going to introduce this to you because not just because I want to sit down for a couple minutes and rest my legs, 
but because I want you to watch a little bit of a video clip. And this is unfair too. It's, enough, it's bad enough to bring you in the middle of Joseph's story. But now I'm going to bring you into about two-thirds of the way through a, a depiction of Joseph. Uh, this is one of the best biblical story depictions I've ever seen. You don't have a chance to get to know the characters and to see their backstory and to kind of know how they behave. But even with missing all of that, I believe that as you watch this encounter that you will kind of maybe open up the window on the, on the big issue that I'm talking about here. And if you're watching closely, you will see it in Joseph's face and you will hear it in his voice. So let's watch the clip and then we'll talk about it. Yes, Master, it's just, well, this man's dialect. I know the tone. Never mind. Give him what he needs. Go! Are you well, Zephyr Maspinair? They're here. I'm sure they're here. Who? My brothers. Your brothers? The ones in Canaanite dress. What should I do, Master? Bring them to me. You, you, you! Come! All of you, come! This way! Bring them all! All of these men! You, you, you! Come! And you! Lift your heads. Look upon your master. They don't even recognize me. Almighty one, have mercy. We come from Canaan, where the drought destroys everything. We bring silver to trade, so that we and our families might survive. You master, Zephanath Benea, ask why your Canaanite gods do not provide for your needs. We're not like the other Canaanites, great master. We worship our own god. But we sojourn in the land of Canaan. 
The master says you're spies. Master is spies. No, master. Our father sent us to to buy food. The master says no. Your spies sent to see the weakness of Egypt. No, master. We are nothing more than shepherds, sons of Jacob, the son of Isaac. What man would send all his sons on such a mission and leave himself alone? What you see are not all his sons. One other, the youngest. He is called Benjamin. Remains with our father. A man is fortunate indeed to have such a wealth of sons. Are you sure you speak the truth of your number? There was one other master, a brother called Joseph, but he was taken from us. What enemy would send ten brothers as spies? One or two, perhaps, but ten? Take them. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Did you see what I was talking about on his face? What is Joseph up to here? You saw the, the fulfillment of his prophetic dream, didn't you? What an incredible moment that must have been for him. But I also think this moment took him off guard. Because if you remember, that's where the dream ended. What is he supposed to do now? All of his childhood now makes sense up to this point. But now he's got a very difficult decision to make. And he ends up grappling with the very same issue that we end up grappling with. A seriously religious woman was being urged to forgive her former husband after 10 years of bruising violence. The elders of her church, male to a man, were pushing on her conscience. As a Christian woman, you have a duty to forgive him. But I cannot, she says. I cannot forgive him now, maybe never. The Apostle Paul says that God helps us do the Christian thing. I'm still looking for that one, by the way. Well, the Apostle was never punched in the mouth with a Christian fist. But it is your duty to take him back. Is it my duty to be beaten? If that's forgiveness, you keep it. Then Smeeds backs up and talks about that little story. He said, let's look at that dialogue again. The woman knew that when the elders told her it was her duty to forgive her husband, they really meant it was her duty to go back and live with him. When she said she could not forgive him, she really meant that she could not live with him. By turning forgiving into an obligation to go back to the same abuse, she was robbed of a chance to heal the wounds that still scar her memory. 
The surest way to convince some people not to forgive is to tell them that if they forgive, they must go back to the person who wounded them. Forgiveness and reunion are not the same thing. Are you hearing me? Linking the two together can sometimes turn forgiveness into a needless risk. Joseph's struggle with his brothers was not over forgiveness. Remember, he had already handled that. We read those words right up front. His decision now was, is there a possibility of restoration of the relationship? He didn't know what to do because the dream ended there. There was no prescription from God at this point. Whatever would happen from this moment on would be up to Joseph. And Joseph was powerful enough, he could have provided for their needs without ever having revealed himself to them. But he wanted more. He had to first decide, though, if reunion or restoration was safe or even possible. And God left that decision up to him. I fear that many of us have never been able to find the freedom of forgiveness that leads to the restoration of our life. Because somewhere along the way, we picked up the notion that those two had to be linked. Forgiveness and restoration. Hear me clearly today. No. You get to decide. Smeeds has a powerful, powerful little statement about this. The former friend we forgive may not be good for us. A former husband may still be addicted to abusing women. A former partner may still be a crook. A forgiven crook, but a crook. Being forgiven does not qualify a person to be a friend, a husband, or a business partner. And if he does not qualify, we are better off to walk away and heal ourselves alone. I think Desmond Tutu got it right back in 1990 when the two sides, after apartheid was beginning to fall apart, they, they got together to see if they could ever have forgiveness and restoration in South Africa. By the way, that all seems to be falling apart these days, if you've been paying attention to the news. But all the leaders of all the churches, both on both sides of the, those that injured and those that received the injuries, they got together in a hotel in one of their towns in South Africa to see if they could work it out. And Tutu made a brilliant speech. He said, yes, the blacks in our country can forgive. Restoration, restoring of the relationship. He said, oh, that's a different story. We can forgive. Could there be a coming together? He said, those who have wronged us must be ready to make what amends they can. If I have stolen your pen, I can't really be contrite when I say, please forgive me if at the same time I still keep your pen. If I am truly repentant, then I will demonstrate this genuine repentance by returning your pen. Then reunion, which is always costly, will happen. It can't happen just by saying, let bygones be bygones. We can forgive him if he keeps the pen. We should not be his friend unless he gives it back. There are differences between forgiveness and reunion. It takes one person to forgive, but it takes two to be reunited. Forgiving happens inside the wounded person. Reunion happens in a relationship between two people. We can forgive even if we don't trust the person who wronged us once not to do it again. 
Reunion can only happen if we trust the person who wronged us once never to wrong us again. Forgiving has no strings attached, but reunion has several strings attached. And by the way, lest you think I'm on shaky theological ground here, let me remind you, God will have offered forgiveness to many people who will not be safe to save. So, what is my appeal to you this morning? Besides, let's have a good lunch together. There's still a few issues in forgiveness I want to talk about this afternoon. Just as I gave you one last case against forgiveness, I want to give you one last case for it. We actually read it already. It comes from our text in Ephesians 4. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, bawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, or just as in Christ God forgave you. I'm going to take a little liberty here this morning and say that I believe he's talking to us, too. So we've got four things here. The who, the what, the why, and the how. The who is we. The what is we must forgive. The why? Because he forgave us. And how is it that we forgive? Just as he forgave. And how is it that he forgave us? He forgave us by taking upon himself our sin. Did you know that if you're going to be truly forgiving, you will have to do the same thing? Does that sound odd? My final quote, and then I've got something I'm going to give to you. Here's the quote. Forgiveness means resolving to live with the consequence of another person's sin. In reality, you will have to live with the consequences of the offender's sin, whether you forgive that person or not. For example, imagine someone in your church says, I have gossiped about you all over town. Will you forgive me? You can't retract gossip any easier than you can put toothpaste back in the tube. You will have to live with the consequences of that person's gossip, no matter how you respond. We are all living with the consequences of someone else's sin. The only real choice is to live with those consequences in the bondage of bitterness or in the freedom of forgiveness. We really are asked to forgive just as Christ forgave us, aren't we? Now, I don't know, Godfrey, if we should take the time to let people do this now or maybe just hand this out and let them look at it. I've got a little piece of paper I want to give to each of you because I want this to be real. I want this to matter to you in your life, right where you are. This is a little prayer of forgiveness, freedom, and healing that I often give to folks. I can give you this one. They'll give you some more here. There should be plenty for everybody. Take a couple if you've if you got more than one person you need to deal with. But what I, I would like to ask you to do is to look this over prayerfully. In fact, um, oh man, Cassie or Debbie, maybe one of you could play the piano just for a second. Then uh, I'll have a prayer in a few minutes. But just give us about one minute. I'd like you just to look this over. Read it through. Don't have to fill it out now unless you're led to. But at least read it over for a few minutes while we have some quiet music playing. And allow what this is asking you to do to sink in. Because this might really be an incredible opportunity for healing in your life. So take a moment just to read that over. We'll just give you a minute or so and then I'll close off with prayer and then we'll enjoy our lunch together.
promise that taking that piece of paper seriously will be easy. In fact, it might be one of the most difficult things you do in your life. But I promise that if you will do it with a heart that is open to what God can do in your heart, that you will find the freedom and release and peace for which you so desperately yearn. I know there are people who have hurt you. You'd had to live in an isolated bubble somewhere in a little island off in the South Pacific all by yourself not to have been hurt. It's what you do with that that matters. God gives you choices here. I hope you'll choose to make the right one. Father dear, I just thank you again for this church family and for the opportunity to talk about the issues of forgiveness. And we're not done. We still have a, another one to cover this afternoon that is so important. But I pray, Lord, that what we've said this morning will take, take deep root in the hearts of everyone who's here. We've all been hurt, Lord. But thank you for your healing grace and thank you for the model you've given us. Not just the model of letting go and not holding bitterness, but actually forgiving sin and taking on our sin. Lord, give us the courage to be willing to live with somebody else's sin toward us. We can only do that because of your grace, but I just thank you that it's there in such abundance. May each person here today surrender to you those who have hurt them. And may they finally find the peace and the freedom and the release that you so desperately want them to feel. Bless us now and bless us as we enjoy our meal together today. Continue to bless our fellowship on this Sabbath, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.